Good evening, my friends, and welcome to 62 Horror Movies with Josh Hitchens. That's me, where I will be your host for a double feature of my favorite scary movies every night throughout the month of October. Come join me, won't you? Tonight is October 3rd, and I've decided that tonight is Literary Vampire Night. Because our double feature this evening contains the first two English language adaptations of classic vampire tales. Our first film of the night is Dracula, produced by Universal Studios in 1931 and directed by Todd Browning. And our second feature of the evening will be The Vampire Lovers, which was produced by Hammer Studios and released in 1971 and that was directed by Roy Lord Baker, and it is the first English-language adaptation of Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's novella, Carmilla. So that is the journey that we're going to take tonight, my friends, and I will be your host. Let's talk about that first movie now. This is how Universal Studios' film of Dracula begins. This selection from Swan Lake has become kind of inextricably identified with Count Dracula. But it's interesting to note that this piece of music you're listening to now in the opening credits is one of only two instances where there is music in this movie. This movie was released in 1931. It is a talkie, albeit an early talkie, and it's still probably the most silent talkie that you've ever seen. And I would argue that that silence really works in a lot of ways in this film. Now, if you're thinking of the Universal Studios' Dracula 1931 with Bela Lugosi, what you're really remembering is the first 20 minutes of this film. Because it's in the first 20 minutes of the 1931 Dracula where uh, you're in Transylvania... Uh, with Renfield uh, replacing Jonathan Harker in this narrative. It is Renfield 
the English solicitor that is going to visit Count Dracula because he's renting Carfax Abbey in England. And Dracula's castle, the design of it, the look of the film in those first 20 minutes is the stuff that once you see it, especially if you see it when you're very young, never really leaves your mind. It is the archetypal iconography of the vampire in so many ways. You think of the initial scene in Dracula's castle where you see the mausoleum in the basement and you see Bela Lugosi's hand sort of snaking out of the coffin in this way only he could do. And then the three women, the three vampire brides. And it's only in this movie uh, for the first time that the three weird sisters of Stoker's book are identified as Dracula's wives, specifically. Um, that dates from here. That's not in the original book. But then you also see a coffin in the basement that has a skeletonized hand reaching out of it. So what's that about? You know, Castle Dracula inspires mysteries. Uh, and you don't see the vampires, Dracula or the three brides, crawl out of their coffins. You see their hands, and then they're just suddenly there. And there's something really genuinely spooky about the fact that they're just suddenly there. Now, this movie does suffer a bit when you compare it to what came before it. When you think of the special effects that are used in the 1931 Dracula, they are really limited to three things. The special effects used in this movie are one- fog. There's lots of fog. They use the fog really, really well, but they use it a lot. Two, a rubber bat on a string, probably on a fishing pole. There's lots of rubber bats flying around this movie, and it's clearly meant to be really, really terrifying, um, but there are rubber bats on the pole. Uh, the third thing and perhaps the most important of all and the most successful of all the special effects in the 1931 Dracula is Bela Lugosi's eyes. Todd Browning, the director, was very smart in that he included so many shots of Bela Lugosi as Dracula, where he is just completely silent, just standing there, and the only thing lit is his eyes. In some cases, there were two tiny pin spots pointed on Lugosi's pupils, and you, God, that must have been painful back in 1931 when this was made, but he, but Lugosi doesn't flinch, he's just this stony figure with these eyes, and those eyes are the things that have haunted millions of people's dreams since this film was made, and Lugosi really did an incredible job playing Count Dracula. He had 
played Dracula in the stage version that had become popular in the late 1920s and early 1930s, played Dracula on Broadway, and he happened to be in uh, on the West Coast touring in Dracula when the movie was being cast in Hollywood, and he lobbied hard for this part. He wanted it so badly. But there were a lot of other people who were in the way of that casting. Todd Browning, the director, one of his best friends in the world, was Lon Chaney, who is most remembered as the original Phantom of the Opera and the unforgettable silent film called The Man of a Thousand Faces, a brilliant, brilliant artist. Todd Browning and Lon Chaney were best friends, and Todd Browning really had the idea that Lon Chaney would be the perfect Dracula. What Todd Browning did not know, and that no one else knew at the time, is that Lon Chaney was dying of cancer. And Lon Chaney died of cancer before Dracula was finally cast. So Todd Browning was in this intense grief for his friend. And Bela Lugosi won the role. He got cast. Uh, he also, part of the reason why he got cast is because he agreed to be paid a ridiculously low salary of $500 a week. He only earned $3,500 for the shooting of this movie. He was one of the lowest, he was the lowest paid member of the main cast. And his work is indelible. Um, the imagery of Count Dracula that we think of today, it is two things. It is either the hideous vampire of Max Schreck in Nosferatu, or Count Dracula is this suave, beautiful man in evening dress with white skin and red lips and the black cape. It's one of those two things. Those are the two versions of Dracula that exist. And every single actor who has ever played Dracula since those two, act those two people is really in one way or another imitating one or the other. Those are the two versions of Dracula. Lugosi's voice, like just the voice he has with his accent, you know, since he was a natural Hungarian, that flavor and the slowness with which he speaks sometimes and the slowness of how he moves and how he uses his hands. It is a deeply committed, richly detailed performance. And you see him so much being beautiful, but then there are several moments in the film where that mask drops and you that smile turns into this disgusting, horrific grimace. And he really makes you believe in the horror of this vampire count who has lived for hundreds of years. Bela Lugosi was a great actor, Full stop, he was. And he never quite managed to be able to escape what he did here. But that doesn't make what he did with Count Dracula in this movie any more revolutionary. It's, 
extraordinary, extraordinary work. And the other great performance that we have to talk about in this movie is that of Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry plays Renfield and I think is the definitive Renfield. You know, in this version of the story, Renfield is the Jonathan Harker that goes to Transylvania to meet Dracula. And when you see him in those initial scenes, he's so put together. Uh, he is the most properest, proper English Englishman that ever Englished. Uh, like, he's really funny and also very sincere and likable in despite his um, clear prejudice against the people who are warning him that what he's doing is not a good idea. And he's really great at the terror of when he gets to Dracula's castle and realizes that something isn't right. And there's that moment when he walks into the castle and there's this giant spider web on the stairs and somehow Count Dracula's walked through it and Dracula Lugosi looks at Renfield, Dwight Fry, and sort of dares him, He's like, show me how you're going to get to me. And, Re and Dwight Fry as Renfield takes the spider web um, apart with his cane. And Dracula says, the spider spreading her web for the unwary fly. And yeah, hitting the symbolism over the head there. But he's so proper in those first scenes, but he becomes unforgettable in the ship scenes and afterwards when he's been bitten by Dracula, is Dracula's slave, and he does that laugh. And that laugh is something you can never unhear. And it's his eyes and the way he stares. Dwight Fry actually had a nickname as an actor. Uh, people in Hollywood called him the man with a thousand watt stare. And you really see that as Renfield in Dracula. And... After that, you know, in the scenes in the sanitarium, like he there there are many times when like he's absolutely crazy, and there are times when he's completely lucid, and you see the man that you saw in the first 20 minutes come back again, that sort of gentle soul, and then it switches into this violent, horrific serial killer kind of thing. And he delivers that monologue almost directly, word for word, from the book of the rats, rats, rats in the last bit of the movie beautifully. Um, Dwight Fry as Renfield, I am going to officially enter in as the first in our what will become a long list throughout this month of actors who were screwed out of Oscar nominations because they were in a horror movie. I think that Dwight Fry should have been nominated as Best Supporting Actor for Dracula. I think it is a great performance that is still underrated today in a lot of ways. The rest of the cast of Dracula isn't that bad either. Um... 
One of the most interesting people, I think, in it is Francis Dade, who plays Lucy Weston, not Lucy Weston Ra. That was too complicated, I guess. Um, But she's really fun. And she's only in really two and a half scenes. You know, she's in the scene when they first meet Count Dracula in England. But she has this really memorable moment of this toast um lofty timbers the walls around are bare echoing to our laughter as though the dead were there and she's really into count dracula um as she reveals in mina and her next scene and then she's bit by dracula and then a little bit later on she comes back as a vampire as the lady in white and they don't, and then they kind of get rid of that really fast. And it's kind of a shame because she's really fun. Um, and that's a thing about this 1931 Dracula is that it moves very fast when you watch it again. Um, the first 20 minutes are Transylvania. By a half hour in, 10 minutes later, Dracula has insinuated himself into London and Lucy's dead. Um, that's how quick it goes. Uh, other great people in this movie, um, I think Helen Chandler as Mina Seward in this version does really interesting work too. Um, she's especially interesting after she begins to be bitten by Dracula and like there are just these camera close-ups of her where you see this in her eyes, this bloodlust, and it's really kind of shocking compared to what you've seen her do before. Um, And she also displays the great anguish of what's happening to her with John Harker, her fiancé, as Dracula begins to infect her. Like, and they actually got the line passed to the censors, Like, he opened a vein in his arm and he made me drink. Like, that's a lot for 1931. Um, Also, in this movie, and I think one of the things that makes it, is Edward Von Sloan as uh, Von Helsing. Uh, Edward Von Sloan, like Bela Lugosi, was a veteran of the Dracula stage play, had played Von Helsing for many years, so is used to it. And he's on he's really great. And I think really the casting of both Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula and Edward von Sloan as von Helsing is the thing that makes this film, I think, still very it gives it a tension that I think is still very interesting today, in that you have these the two foreigners, you know. Bela Lugosi, the Hungarian, Edward von Sloan, the German, you know. Um, And it's a battle of wills between these two foreigners in this society, as they are both outsiders, and they are battling to be the one who is left standing to be recognized by the proper British people around them. I think that's a really interesting part of this. Um, Yeah. It's interesting to think about 
the special effects or lack thereof in Dracula 1931 when you, I hope, have watched Hexen from 1922, actually filmed before. So it was a decade, really, before Dracula 1931 and how backward the special effects seem um, in this film. That's, again, one of the reasons why I think Hexen is the best horror movie ever made, because we didn't catch up to it for a long time. I also must mention um, one other performance, Charles K. Gerard as Martin, who's the uh, um, chief asylum attendant at Dr. Seward's asylum, who is just a delight throughout this entire movie, just the stereotypical like, working-class, cockney, like, I don't know what the fuck these rich people are up to. Um, he's great. This movie is a lot better and a lot more disturbing than I think a lot of people today give it credit for. It is definitely a product of its time. It is definitely, in a lot of ways, a step back from Nosferatu and Hexen from years before. But it does introduce a huge amount of, icono of iconography that has lasted and deepened up into the present day and will continue to do so. And I think the best line in the 1931 Dracula is said by Dwight Fry as Renfield when he walks into the room and he's been listening to Von Helsing and Dr. Seward talk about Dracula and the vampires. And Renfield walks in and says, this is a strange conversation coming from men who are supposed to be sane. It's a really interesting comment. That's not the exact line, but something like that. But you'll watch it and enjoy this movie. There is a lot more here than it's given credit for. It's something that will live forever. So pause now and enjoy Dracula 1931, starring the great Bela Lugosi, and then join me for our second double feature of the night. This is the music played over a beheading of a vampire in the second feature of our Night of Literary Vampires, The Vampire Lovers, released in 1970 by Hammer Studios in England, directed by Roy Ward Baker and based on Joseph, Le Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's novella, Carmilla. Mm -hmm. 
So, Carmilla is one of my favorite gothic tales. I read it not long after I first read Dracula when I was quite young, and it has really stuck with me through the years. And although there had been um, other versions of Carmilla adapted for cinema in other parts of the world before The Vampire Lovers in 1970, it is the first English-language version of the book, and I honestly think it is the most successful, faithful adaptation of Carmilla that I have yet seen in film to date. Um, it was directed by Roy Ward Baker, and he directed several Hammer movies. Hammer Studios was really the second coming of the horror movies in cinema all over the world. You know, first um, you have Universal Studios in the 1930s and 1940s for the first time popularizing the horror film. Um, one thing I didn't talk about when I was talking about Dracula from 1931 is that if you read contemporary reviews of it, they call it a mystery film, a melodrama, a thriller. Uh, the tagline was the strangest passion you have ever seen. The word horror movie, like horror as a movie genre, did not exist yet in 1931 when Dracula was released and when Universal's Frankenstein was released. And it was really those movies that caused people to recognize horror as a world of cinema all unto its own. So I think that's important to, to note. Uh, but Hammer Studios in England really started the renaissance of the horror film, I think. Um, in the late 1950s, they released The Curse of Frankenstein, with Frankenstein played by uh, some guy named Christopher Lee. And then also the same year, they released uh, Dracula, known in elsewhere in the world as Horror of Dracula, starring Christopher Lee as Dracula and Peter Cushing, another brilliant actor, as Von Helsing. And throughout the 1960s, Hammer was really the main studio in terms of horror. And, I mean, if you've seen one Hammer horror movie, you've kind of seen them all, although you should see them all, because they're all very fun. But they follow a formula uh, where it is a period setting, 19th century or earlier. So you have lots of gorgeous costumes, lots of gorgeous period-looking scenery. And you've got some good actors. And you've definitely got some beautiful women in the cast who are showing lots of cleavage. And there is... Uh, lots of blood as much as the censor will allow. That's really the Hammer horror movie aesthetic, and it's great. Um, 
And if I do this again next year, we'll do more uh, Hammer movies. But this is the one I chose for this month because I think it is underrated. Uh, the Vampire Lovers, as I said, was released in 1970. And a lot of people thought that Hammer Studios were kind of washed up by that point. And this is the movie where they entered a phase where they made films that were very much about lesbian stories and also contained actual full female nudity. Um... In their movies before, they had always placed a uh, honestly comical emphasis on women's cleavage. Um, but The Vampire Lovers in 1970 is the first time that they actually showed full female nudity. And this movie is kind of no notorious for that. But there actually is not a lot of nudity in this movie. And the m nudity that exists serves the story. It doesn't seem like it's for exploitation. It just makes sense in the context. Um, yeah, uh, this movie stars Ingrid Pitt. And Ingrid Pitt plays the character Carmilla, who exists in different forms throughout this movie. And she's just a wonderful, wonderful actor in this film. Um, how she got cast in this film was she was at a party, and she met a, this guy at a party, started talking to her, and he was like, oh, I'm a producer. And she was like, oh, yeah. Sure, I've heard it a hundred times before. Uh, and it turned out he was a producer for Hammer Studios, and he invited her for an audition the following day, and it was for uh, the role of Carmilla in The Vampire Lovers, and Ingrid Pitt got cast. And I think one of the great things about this movie is that Ingrid Pitt, unlike the, uh, the women that she preys on in this film... Ingrid Pitt is a just voluptuous woman. She was 33 years old when she made this film. So, among the gross misogynistic standards of the time, like, she should have been past it. Like, she should have, it should have been an actor in her 20s. But here is Ingrid Pitt as Carmilla in The Vampire Lovers bearing all her skin and feeling and feeling great about it and being 33 and that is a beautiful thing um if you go on imdb uh for the trivia for the vampire lovers there are a lot of excerpts about uh interviews that ingrid pitt did about this movie and her regard for when she looked back and talked about the nudity that she did in this film, she said uh, words to the effect like, yeah, I loved my body at the time. It's something to show the grandchildren. You know, that grandma always didn't look like you see her. Um, and I think that's so wholesome. Uh, this movie 
was going to be censored heavily originally. Uh, John Trevelyan, who was the censor of, uh, in the British uh, censor program at the time, was like, there's way too much lesbian content in this movie. And what Hammer Studios did is they countered back and said, we haven't added anything. Everything that you see in this script is in Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's novella Carmilla published over a hundred years ago. And the British censors backed down, um, which is a rare victory of censorship. And the lesbianism in The Vampire Lovers is really kind of beautifully felt. Um, it's not treated as an abomination. Uh, and it's interesting how the vampire attacks happen in this movie. You know, following the original novella Carmilla, like the women that are preyed upon by Carmilla have these dreams. And in The Vampire Lovers, uh, the director Roy Ward Baker visualizes them as going into these black and white sort of surrealist montages where they're preyed upon by a giant black cat. And Carmilla's victims are not bitten on the neck. They are bitten on the breast. And there are several scenes where Carmilla's victims are having nightmares or being visited by her, and their response is not terrifying. It's orgasmic and pleasurable until they scream. Um, it's really, really good stuff. And I think this is really an intelligent adaptation of Le Fanu's Carmilla, because Carmilla as a novella, it's not as long as Dracula, it's much, much shorter, so how do you make that into a feature-length 90-minute movie? And what they did is they took a s sort of subplot of the novella and made it the beginning of the movie. So in Carmilla, if you've never read it, you should, again... Um, it's told first person by a woman named Laura who meets Carmilla and the things that happen in this movie happen. And then a general pops up who has this whole backstory of how Carmilla preyed upon and killed his daughter. And then they go and kill the vampire. And what the vampire lovers does is it takes that sort of pre-story of the general and makes that the first half hour of the movie. And then the rest of the movie, the following hour, is the actual novella. And I think that's a way of adapting Carmilla that has never been duplicated since and is really successful. And you get to have um, Peter Cushing pop in at the, you know, first half hour and last half hour of your lesbian vampire movie as the general who knows all who's going to stake the vampire, Carmilla. Um, it's a really interesting movie. Uh, it is available to stream on Shudder. 
And if you are listening to this, and if you are a fan of horror movies, and you have not subscribed to Shudder.com, the horror movie streaming service, I highly recommend you do so. It's well worth it. Alright, so now watch The Vampire Lovers. There actually um, were two more movies in this series forming the Karnstein Trilogy. Uh, the other movies following The Vampire Lovers were Lust for a Vampire and The Twins of Evil. Um, and they're also really fun movies, too. Highly recommend. Um, but this is the only movie Ingrid Pitt was in, and Ingrid Pitt does amazing work. So watch The Vampire Lovers, and we'll come back, and you'll find out what we're going to watch tomorrow night. Thank you for joining me on 62 Horror Movies with Josh Hitchens. That's me. Tomorrow, I think we're going to have a very dark and stormy night. First, we're going to watch The Old Dark House from 1932, and then... Haunted Honeymoon from 1986. Thank you for listening to 62 Horror Movies, and I'll see you all tomorrow night. Happy Halloween.